Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 26, 2020, the $2 trillion edition. I am David Plotz of my closet, Emily Bazelon of Yale University and the New York Times Magazine and her attic. Yes. Joins me from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. Nice to see you on Zoom. And John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes and his bookshelf. Hello, John. And you have galleys of your book, too. I do, uh, and, and I would show people, but this is not a visual medium, as I've been uh, led to believe. Um, and I just enlarged the screen, and uh, <laughs> looking at myself, all I can say is I apologize. You look great. Uh, what do you mean? What could you possibly really, mean? It's so nice to see you guys. It's just nice uh, to see you guys and to see yeah. Joss and Bridget. So it's great to see you again, regardless of how, how uh, unshaven or dirty any of us looks. On today's GabFest, the tug of war over how long the shutdown should last and why will the president abet a public health catastrophe by encouraging Americans to get back to normal life too soon? And do we have even the remotest sense that this pandemic is beginning to change, that we are beginning to get any of it under control, even as New York sinks into what appears to be an absolutely disastrous situation? We will talk to an epidemiologist, Greg Gonsalves about all of that. Then the largest stimulus bill in world history attempts to forestall an economic collapse here in the U.S., but is $2 trillion enough? We'll talk about that. And then we will hear from Civil War historian David Blight about what history can teach us about living through catastrophe. David is one of my favorite people to talk to about anything, and I can't wait to hear his historical perspective on this. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. There is a raging debate going on in this country, stoked by President Trump over how long the corona freeze should last. The president said this week, idiotically, that he wants people in stores and churches by Easter, which is just a couple of weeks away. Meanwhile, there are a couple of other people. There's a group of other people who are arguing in a a similar vein that social distancing be damned. Let's let the disease run its course through the young and healthy keep the economy humming, try to protect the old during that. Greg Gonzalez is an assistant professor at Yale University School of Public Health. He's an epidemiologist. He has a somewhat different perspective on this. So, Greg, can you start with the, what do you think are the major fallacies of the let's get back to business, we've done enough already proposals that we're hearing from the president and others? So, first of all, let's start off with where we are. We're in the midst of a raging pandemic and a national public health response that nobody thought could be this bad. Um, And so we're in a situation where ICUs all over the country, particularly in New York and the Northeast, but slowly 
across the country are, are going to be full to capacity and people are going to be making choices about who lives and who dies. So the projections are maybe one, between one and two million deaths if we relax social distancing. In the absence of a vaccine for, or a treatment for, for COVID-19, we are stuck with social distancing as the main way of protecting ourselves. Now, public health experts and epidemiologists all realize the ask is a big one. And we're all doing the same thing as, as people are doing all over the world, following these guidelines. We also realize we have to think of a way out. Um, this can't go on forever. The more weeks we accumulate of, of this sort of social isolation, people will be chomping to, to get out of their houses, meet their friends and family, um, resume normal life. So these discussions are happening in the world of public health, not just sort of in the, in the greater sort of public uh, discourse. What we don't need are fa false choices. The idea that we have to pit the economy versus protecting the public health. I've been speaking to both my public health colleagues and colleagues in economics, people like Zach Cooper here at Yale, and others who don't see a, a conflict in this at all. The, the way to save the economy, the way to save our friends and family's lives is to beat this virus. Great. One way you came to our attention was a, a Twitter thread that was in particular a response to a piece in the New York Times by... David Katz, I think his name is, which argued we can let the uh, let the young get this disease, protect the olds, and that'll be fine. Talk about why it is why it's not possible for that model to work, which I think Emily and I both have played with and were tempted by and wanted to believe in. And Emily, I don't, I shouldn't speak for you. You can speak for I, me. I, I mean, I've at least I just wanted, temporarily I just jettisoned want it. You to explain to our audience why that's a fallacy. Well, it's interesting too, because it, it was very appealing to Jim Dowen and James Bennett, the New York Times. There was an easy out. There was a way to get through this without the pain that uh, I think many are, are contemplating over a long period of social isolation. You know, we are the dean of our school of public health, Stan Vermont, myself, Stott Omer, who runs the Yale Institute for, for Global Health, uh, and Becca Levy, another professor here at, at Yale, wrote a piece in the Times, a short letter, saying why this is why this is not sort of a credible um, plan for addressing the epidemic. One is the idea that we can sort of sequester all the elderly in the United States and their caregivers in some sort of safety over the course of months, while life goes on outside of uh, outside of their their sort of sequestered. Existences, it's not credible. We don't have a safety net that's going to be able to sort of sustain this for the elderly in isolation over, over time. The other piece is that we don't know, you know, many of you probably know uh, of, of people in your social circles or one or two degrees of separation who are in the ICU or have been sick who are not 75 or 85 years old. So, as many of us know, David Latt, founder of Above the Law, a lawyer in New York City who is has been in, been in the ICU, is, is a marathon runner physically fit by all other standards who has the disease. If you let younger people out to go to work with the idea that let them just get exposed and they'll get a mild illness or they won't get anything at all, um, discounts the fact that a certain percentage of young people will get serious disease and die. And you just have to do the, the math, right? If there's a big difference between uh, a one, let's say a 1% chance of serious illness when you have 100 people, one person out of 100 will get it. But if there are 10,000 people, a million people, 10 million people, and you multiply it by 1%, we're talking about a, a, a huge absolute number of, of young people ending up in the ICU. The other thing is that um, 
this could be a seasonal coronavirus infection and sort of seeding it across uh, the American landscape by sort of letting everybody get it except a, a small group of people doesn't bode well for trying to eradicate this as sort of a recurring infection that comes up with, so we have flu and coronavirus season, which means you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of deaths on, a, on an annual basis. So those are the main reasons why the Katz editorial was wishful thinking sort of wrapped in, in sort of a veneer of, of, of science. Um, I just want to say you brought up my friend um, David Latt, who I'm really worried about. He is on a ventilator and I think sedated, according to the latest news that I heard, and um, just been thinking about him a lot. And there are other people like that as well. So I think the way in which this virus is starting to touch us, especially in the Northeast, or I don't know, maybe that's not even true, um, starts, it's starting to feel very real, at least to me. If we're looking for an evidence-based approach to this. What are the next things we should be watching for? Um, and what are some of the time horizons uh, that we can be paying attention to as we determine how to go forward? Or markers, maybe. You know, there's a rational case being made for going forward, and it's coming from both public health and economists. People like Gabriel Zuckman, Emmanuel Sayez from Berkeley, Paul Romer, the Nobel Prize winning economist, a bunch of people are saying we can stem the economic damage that this, this crisis is going to cause um, by undergirding sort of the economy from the bottom up, not through 80, $850 billion worth of corporate subsidies, but really figuring out how to sort of support you, all the four of us, the five of us in our daily lives in terms of social distancing, income support, all the social services we need to make sure that people who are less fortunate than us are able to do this. And then we watch and we continue the social distancing and we'll see the peak uh, of cases start to, to lessen. Hopefully we'll have millions and millions of tests in a few months so that we can understand the extent of the, the epidemic that still lingers in the United States and have antibody tests. We can understand who's been exposed and who's not been exposed. If one of us has antibodies to the virus and never had symptoms, maybe we can go back to work or be part of the volunteer effort. Um, and so this is going to be a very, uh, um, step-by-step process to get people back to work. It's not like one day we're going to flip a switch and it's all going to be over. It's going to be a gradual, gradual scale down of social distancing interventions over the course of months. Um, And it's going to take a massive investment of public health resources in order to do it. We're not prepared to do it based on the status quo as it exists today. Um, And that's what the scary thing is, because there's an absolute failure in leadership from the top, which is interested in denial and, and, and sort of misinformation. So we have people up and down the chain of management not really willing to do the wrong thing because doing the wrong thing means telling your boss something that he doesn't want to hear. Greg, I wonder if you have any sense about whether New York is, which is now the epicenter of the pandemic in the world, whether it is a harbinger for the United States or it's a uniquely bad place. And and to ask that question a different way, one of the things I've been wondering about and I'm interested in your professional take on is for the most part, Americans live pretty far apart from each other. We're a big country. We're not that densely populated. And except for a few cities, we aren't. We don't have places where people really live cheek by jowl. New York is one of them. And are we likely to have some protection from the fact that, that many Americans actually are socially distant in how they live to begin with? So New York is not a bad place. I think um, as a New Yorker, I, I think it's a fine place to live. I think the population density is one reason why uh, we might be seeing a more severe epidemic there, but it's also just going to be luck of the draw, right? It's a major transportation hub. The future for the country, um, if you start to look at the maps like the New York Times, you're going to see this sort of start 
to rise up in urban areas. Think of Miami. Ron DeSantis, the governor there, said, you know, I'm not ready to sort of tell people to stay home from work. Um, uh, he he dilly-dallied in terms of closing the beaches. So you're going to see other cities around the U.S. start to have their cases mount, um, particularly in, in states where governors have uh, basically followed the lead of the White House and downplaying the risk for, for their communities. But also think of it not as a function of density, but as social networks. Think of communities that are tightly um, woven together, the, the Amish or the Mennonites in, in, in rural Pennsylvania and others who depend on, on lots of social contacts. So it may not be about population density, it could be about the density of social networks. One thing I've been wondering about is how heartened to be by the drop in rising cases in Italy. So I've been hearing for weeks that Italy was like a couple of weeks ahead of us, and they seem like us to have, you know, initially resisted or struggled with social distancing, but then really gone on much more of a national shutdown. And now it seems like a couple of weeks after that, there is starting to be a fall in the rising case rate there. Is that something that suggests that if we can really do the social distancing for two or three weeks, we can expect a similar achievement? Or am I kind of exaggerating here and grasping at straws? So look, I mean, I think what happened in Italy is that once they saw the rising death tolls, they they sort of went into lockdown. Um, and, you know, if we look at what happened in Wuhan and, and other places, um, South Korea, uh, a mixture of testing and social distancing has been uh, a way to sort of um, flatten the curve, but also to sort of um, start to sort of control the epidemic. We have not taken the route that Spain or Italy or other sort of countries that have been hard hit in Europe have done. We don't have a national lockdown. Um, we have a lockdown in New York State. Uh, we have... Uh, you know, orders in Connecticut and other states around the country like California to institute strong social distancing measures, but it's not all 50 states and it's not even across the country. The sad thing is we, we, we sink or swim together and, you know, viruses don't understand the borders between New York and New Jersey or Mississippi and, you know, Mississippi and its neighbors. And so, um, unless we sort of figure out a way to sort of do more rigorous social distancing across the country for a sustained period of time, we're just piling infections upon infections. We're, we're building new sort of chains of infection across the United States. And it's not going to be two or three weeks, probably going to be two or three months of hardship. And we're going to have to figure out a way through this. Um, it, it, you know, staying in our own houses, not seeing anybody we know for a long time is going to be hard to do. We're going to have to think of ways to sort of build social connections, maybe isolate ourselves for a couple of weeks alone, and then maybe try to figure out ways we can we can widen our social circles, but we're not at that point yet at all. Greg, to endure that couple of months process, it seems to me that we'll, people will need some evidence of places where social distancing is working. If, for example, in New York, where the streets are almost empty, how how soon would do you think we should look for or when might we have some inkling that it's working if we do these things and those things so that people might be able to say, oh, OK, Here's proof that the social distancing is actually working. We'll now engage in it for a longer period so that we can get to nirvana. And then the second question is on antibodies. What do we actually know about what happens after you get it, antibodies building up? Because as you were saying earlier, that seems to be to be part of the case for this future world. But what do we really know uh, about how it behaves? So epidemiologists can't predict the future. They have models to do it. And I think people are trying to think through some of these issues. 
but um, you'll see it in the public health data. Your Department of Health in New York City will see it and, and start to see decreasing uh, cases heading to the emergency room, heading to the ICU. As we scale up testing, we'll get a better sense of what the sort of infection rates are in the city and across the five boroughs and into the suburbs. We don't know what antibody responses to, to coronavirus mean. Maybe it means you're, you're immune, maybe it doesn't. The hope is that an antibody response can, means you've been exposed, you've, you're protected against the, the virus, and that um, you're, you're likely not infectious. Um, but you know, these are all sort of um, assumptions and, and, um, and speculation at this point. This is a new disease. The natural history is not uh, well-defined. And so um, I wish I had better sort of things to say with more certainty, but th- that's sort of the world we live in right now. You have a long record of um, fighting the AIDS pandemic, uh, I think beginning in the 80s. And so in a sense, I feel like you've kind of been through this before in a way that maybe um, some other people have not. And I wonder when you look back on that era, what um, is resonant for you? I'm I'm less curious about the science, I guess, than I am about like the stories we tell ourselves about the disease, the way in which we respond, the the role that government and that leaders play at these moments. And I wonder what you're thinking about from that time. I mean, you know, first of all, people who went to the AIDS epidemic are having a little bit of um, living nightmares over the past two or three weeks in terms of the the arrival of, of COVID nineteen. The sort of discussion of hydroxychloroquine and these sort of these cures that are around the corner. You know, we waited for 15 years until we had drugs that really dropped or calibrate with HIV. And so, you know, people were looking at egg lipid concoctions and blood thinners and other sort of um, uh, grasping at straws in terms of looking for treatments that we're seeing now peddled by the White House. The interesting thing is, is that, you know, during the AIDS epidemic, President Reagan didn't say the word AIDS until seven years into his, his two terms as president. And that was sort of a malign neglect borne by sort of his homophobia and the fact that the disease was was um, targeting you know gay men, people use drugs, and other sort of vulnerable populations in the United States. Now we have sort of another sort of crisis of malign neglect and sort of malevolence and incompetence, which is reminiscent of that era. But the the strange thing, which I find baffling beyond belief, is that this White House is willing to sacrifice you know, as, as the lieutenant governor of, of Texas said, entire classes of people to sort of uphold sort of their denial about the seriousness of this epidemic. So it's just, you know, if Ronald Reagan could be blamed uh, for letting the AIDS epidemic sort of run out of control in a small, you know, to me, very important group of Americans afflicted by the disease, here we have a White House that's willing to let it run rampant um, uh, across the entire sort of American demographic. And the lieutenant governor of Texas was not only making a, a morally frightening argument, but also based on what you've said, was making one based on assumptions about COVID-19 that we don't even know are the actual case, which is he was saying, let the grandparents die and everybody else will be in the protected population and they'll be OK. What you were saying is we don't really know if even that could be possible or even wise. I mean, the scary thing to me is that there is such a denigration of expertise in this moment um, and an elevation of sort of pseudoscience and pseudoeconomics. It's interesting. I, I have no love for Larry Summers, um, but he tweeted out a, a little uh, admonition to Lloyd Blankfein from Goldman Sachs saying, hey, when did you turn out to be an epidemiologist? Uh, would you like public health experts talking to you about the, the role of derivatives in the financial industry? 
Um, so the, the point is, is that it's not just like the lieutenant governor of Texas who is susceptible to this. You have you have people in in industries that uh, you know are going to take a hit by this, who are indulging in sort of fantasy, magical thinking, um, uh, even though they should know better. And can I just follow up on that? What then would you advise for people to produce to to behave in epistemic hygiene uh, in a way, which is, you know, to, to to practice intelligently taking in information and who should they listen to and and what should they discard? So let's put it this way: I'm very interested in what the economic impact of of this is going to be, and I'm not going to prognosticate with you about what I think we should do, but I start triangulating. I think of reasonable sources in economics from the across the ideological spectrum, right, to see what they're saying. And you're seeing conservative and uh, liberal economists basically saying, let's deal with the virus and then we'll figure out how to deal with uh, sort of rebooting the economy when we need to turn it back on again. Um, and so I think the thing is to triangulate and look for reasonable sources, um, check your sources. This is, this is sort of journalistic practice. Um, if you're a good reporter, you don't sort of take the first sort of crazy thing that rolls across your desk and put it in the New York Times is not bad. You start to ask, who is this person who is telling you uh, things that you want to hear? Let's talk to some other epidemiologists, some other economists, and start to sort of build a case that, that, that makes the information you have in your hand a reasonable uh, assumption to make. Greg Gonzalez is an assistant professor at the Yale University School of Public Health and epidemiologist. And he didn't say this but Emily points it out. He's a MacArthur winner, so certified genius. So you should definitely listen to him. Greg, thank you for joining us. We hope to talk to you again soon under better circumstances. Anytime. All right, Greg has left us. I'm interested, Emily, how you and I both, I think last week, had the sense like, oh, maybe maybe there's quick shortcuts. I certainly have been disabused of that this week and am now in the whatever it takes mode but uh how did what greg said strike you i think because i tend to want to look ahead constantly i was skipping over the short term and heading right to the medium or long term and then the notion that president trump was ready to jettison the shutdown before in a sense it's even really become complete and national as greg was saying made it feel irresponsible and way premature to be having conversations that I think we still need to have, but later. And right now, it just seems really clear that we are trying to prevent what could be, you know, a catastrophic number of deaths, a rush on our hospital system that will be just incredibly traumatic for everyone involved, patients, healthcare workers, loved ones. And that just seems really urgent. And like, it's the the business at hand. And then what happens after that? Yeah, I think there are trade-offs, as Greg was acknowledging, but we're not at a point where it's time to, um, like, it feels like putting the cart before the horse to to try to figure that out in the short term. You, you know what really unsettles me is there was a Tyler Cowen piece last week, which was that the short-term American response to this will be the way will be bad, that all America, America is really bad at short-term responses to everything. You're never prepared. The just-in-time economy has compounded that. But once we get going, it'll be great will be so innovative and just look at how we responded to world war ii and what worries me is that i certainly see the slowness and the incompetence that we have now but what i don't have a good sense of is whether in fact we're being super innovative whether great things are happening whether the world is improving in the way that that we 
talked about, whether we're coming up with innovation. Well, what we can see is tremendous disorganization in the logistics piece of this from the government. I mean, this is the thing that's making me the maddest right now is the idea that like for lack of um, relatively inexpensive masks or expensive but possible to create ventilators, people are going to die and that there's no centralized way of moving them around the country, that governors are competing with each other. And I don't understand why we're not just using in a strong way the Defense Production Act to make sure that that happens. Just to your point, David, about um, where the innovation can come from, I'm holding on to the idea. I, too, have been struck. We have all of these billionaires running around shooting rockets up into the air as vanity projects to um, do all kinds of wonderful things. I'm I'm down with that, and I agree with shooting stuff into the air because I think you can learn all kinds of cool stuff. But why there isn't a foot race among the billionaire class to come up with solutions to, A, build a sustainable economy for those people getting creamed by this in the short term so that you can build economics strength to get through the social distancing, B, why there isn't some great race to find some of the solutions that would take care of the medical problem. That all seems super confusing to me. But then what I hold yeah, on, seriously. What, I, what I hold on to if the final thing is a, is a quote I saw somewhere actually on a Twitter account that was attacking me for something once was that great to be great. You have to disappear, which is my hope is that there is somebody somewhere who isn't offering a thousand hot takes on Twitter, who is quietly doing the diligent focused work that we all know is responsible to get actual achievements in life and that they are <laughs> coming up with the solution and that the fact we haven't heard from them is actually proof that they are on the way to the promised land. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. Today, we're going to just talk about the weirdest insider realization that we've had during social distancing. And I don't even know. We'll see. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. The Senate passed last night by a unanimous vote, I believe, a mammoth stimulus bill, the largest bill, I think, in the history of the world of any sort, $2 trillion in emergency spending. Essentially, what they're proposing to do is put the economy in a medically induced coma to give the economy, give everyone a chance to stabilize, to to put money in most people's pockets or many people's pockets to ensure a lot of people that their jobs are still going to be there to reduce the pain of unemployment for those millions of people, 3.3 million alone in the last week who are filing for unemployment so that when we can get back to the economy, to real economic activity, to real commerce and real, uh, connection and activity, we are able to do it in, a, in an economy that is able to function. So I've been thinking and reading a lot about this bill. I have a lot of thoughts, but uh, I'm interested in your guys's initial reaction is that, is this bill enough? Is it the right thing? Is it taking the right approach to the catastrophe we face? John, go for it. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a good stab. It's a good start. It's it's, um, you know, increasing unemployment benefits, getting the checks out there is good. Uh, the payroll handling for small businesses um, really important um, just to say you can keep paying people. If you're a small business, a friend of mine who is uh, intimately involved in one was was really on the edge of his seat waiting to find out if there was going to be this relief. And and in his voice, hearing um, the the 
fear if it was this wasn't going to be addressed um, was was real. And so in the passage of the bill, I kind of uh, hear that fear abating. I mean, I haven't talked to him since last night, but so I think that it is taking care of of um, uh, uh, lots of people. And we saw on Thursday, the unemployment claims, there were 3.3 million unemployment claims. So I'm um, interested what becomes of uh, Lindsey Graham's argument that this might induce some businesses to um, to actually let workers go um, because they know there will be a bit of a safety net. I don't you know, it'll be interesting to watch the behavioral economy uh, economics of how this ball bounces. But I think there's like basically they should start working on the next bill immediately um, because they're already thinking about how to, you know, with this these crazy ideas about Easter from the president. Um there are going to be waves and waves of assistance needed. Um, and so they should start working on the next set of issues because this is just temporary and fast. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good bill. I think given the circumstances, A, what you say, certainly at the end is true, John, that this is a bill that gets two months. It's it's two, two and a half, three months of, of time that it's going to buy. It does not buy time to the end of the year. But it really does support lots of people in important ways for three months. I think the small business piece that you point to, which is the one that I focused on most, is absolutely critical. It's the way it is going to be the difference for most of the small businesses in this country to be able to, to get through the coming weeks. They will be able to meet payroll. They'll be able to keep most of their employees employed in some fashion, uh, even though there will be no economic activity. And so, obviously there you could fight all the live long day about different ways to do it. It's certainly the big corporations are getting big handouts, big, big loans from this, but given the time pressure, given the circumstances, I think it's pretty good. I think it's pretty good. And, and they will have to go back to the table in two months to do the same thing. If, if we remain as frozen as we were. And I, I do keep coming back to this medically induced coma idea is that they're just, economic activity is not possible right now. And so the most of the things that most of us do to earn our living are not possible. People don't have money to pay for it. They can't pay for it. They can't do it. And so only the essential functions, the healthcare activities, the food production, the production of toilet paper should continue. And those folks are going to carry the burden for the rest of us for some months. And then this is going to give the hundreds of millions who are not involved in those particularly essential activities, uh, the security they know that they can that they will have the ability to pay for their food and the ability to get food. And that's the most important thing. And and then we'll be able to return to something closer to normal when this eases. So I, I rarely say a nice thing about Congress. This does not seem like a terrible bill to me. How concerned should we be about the handouts to the big corporations? Initially, Elizabeth Warren, for one, had this list of, you know, eight conditions she wanted to place on it. Seems to me like maybe half or one of those conditions got met. There is an oversight board. So this notion that the uh, Steve Mnuchin, our Treasury Secretary, was just going to be able to give out the money. We wouldn't know who got it for six months like that is gone. And that seemed like an important change that the Democrats won. But I still have misgivings about the degree to which this is this giant corporate bailout. And we're just sort of accepting this because the other parts of the bill felt so necessary. Like, should the Democrats have stripped out that part? Um, or, are, or am I exaggerating? Like, are there more constraints than I can see? 
I don't think there are more constraints than you can see. I think it's a giant corporate bailout and the government, the feds got very little in return. And that's a function of the fact that huge corporations are the, the most influential lobby in the world. And huge American corporations have enormous power in Congress and they were able to shape this bill largely on terms that they want. Yeah. That's, that's a problem, but it's not it's not the end of the well, world. I also, I, I mean, I think there are three other things that are a part of the conversation. One is, and they also employ a lot of people, and it's important for them to uh, to exist, which doesn't undermine what David's saying. It's additive. The second thing is um, the the oversight question is interesting to me, and I, I haven't looked at the bill because it goes on forever enough to figure this out, but... Um, when I talked to Steve Ratner, who um, helped the Obama administration with the car bailout, one of the things he said about the troubled asset relief plan is that the money that was in that, that they used to help rescue the uh, the car the auto industry, lacked a lot of the traditional strings that are required um, in dealing with Congress, and that it was that freedom of movement that allowed them to actually be more effective in his argument. Now, there are lots of people who will who will push back against that for a bunch of different ways. But my only point is, is to make the case that um, that his argument was basically the only way they could have fixed the car companies if they had had the traditional the traditional oversight from from Congress would have been to basically let one of the car companies fail the way Lehman did and then have everybody emerge issue a bunch of emergency money. So. What'll be interesting to see is obviously there will be abuses of the of um, even the limited oversight there is now, but how you've reached that sweet spot between having the freedom to move and act in an emergency situation and oversight is always one of these challenges with this with these issues, and it's why when you look at administrations, not to get on my hobby horse, but when you look at administrations, that's why you want to know who's in them at all the lower levels, because they're the ones who are going to have enormous power in these kinds of emergency uh, instances. Um, and so, you know, that'll just be something interesting to um, watch. And then the final thing is, it's interesting, Mnuchin is one of the few people in the Trump administration who's been around for a while. And I wonder how much that actually helped them finally after lots of bickering and back and forth actually helped in getting, at least he knew who the players were. One of the things we're seeing in the rest of this disaster is that you had a lot of temporary people in positions they didn't know what they were doing, and that caused all kinds of systemic problems. I wonder if there was any benefit, whatever you may think of Steve Mnuchin, positive or negative, to the fact that he's actually just been around and has some kind of working relationship with the White House and the leaders in uh, Congress. I just want to go back to what you were saying about Ratner's point. I have no idea how true that is, but even if you accept it for a minute, that's like a front-end issue about oversight. What is bothering me is the notion that we're not going to get this money back at the end, that right. like the corporations are, yes, of course, we don't want them to lay off tons of people. I'm all for that. But why can't the American people get some of those profits back in the end if well, that's indeed what this ends up yielding? They're loans. So well, yeah, but I mean, I'm talking about more than just paid getting back. paid back for a loan. Like, what do you mean? Well, like equity in the companies, like some sense that there is actually some larger transfer of corporate wealth at this moment of tremendous inequality, rather than a simple acceptance of the idea that, um, you know, it's the ultimate shareholder value of the companies that is going to come out is so important. I mean, maybe I'm mixing up my own frustration with how obsessed President Trump is with the stock market, which seems fairly irrelevant to me right now. 
Well, well I th- actually think there's a really interesting point there, Emily, which is that there's two metonymies here that keep getting us screwed. One metonymy is mistaking the stock market for the economy. The other is mistaking the economy for life. And there's this this way in which so much of what this debate in Washington has been about, like getting the economy back and what Trump talks about, getting the economy going. Trump wants it so he can get the stock market up. But really, the economy is just a measure of, of you know, human well-being. It's like a, it's a bad measure of human well-being and human activity. And we could all live in a, a country which had a really terrible economy but be much happier and more prosperous because of other other factors and and so i i just worry in general about using the economy as the barometer for anything right now much less the stock market well i i think what you're putting your finger on is something that i'm obsessed with which is the the short and long-term emergency measures here that we have to take and and in in one sense when there's an emergency on um I'm I'm okay with dropping, you know, not inserting uh, provisions about having clean airline fuel and lots of other things that might be worthy, but at the moment are an obstacle to getting fast relief to people who are out of a job and have no idea where their next paycheck is going to come from. So I think in the short term, you have those kinds of issues which should be focused on. The larger term question is the one you're talking about, David, which is this weird mixing that is a part of the underlying problem and that I think is a source of some of your frustration, Emily, which is this should cause a gargantuan case of near-miss learning, which is, you know, when you fall asleep at the wheel and almost hit the oncoming semi-truck, you don't keep driving or you don't make it a pattern in your life to drive when you're really, really tired. You say, I'm going to set up my life in such a way that I'm not going to be asleep at the wheel and liable to get hit by a semi-truck again. The near-miss learning that should engage here about the inequities in the economy, the inequities in the healthcare system, the way we talk about the economy, to your point, David, which is that we should stop talking about it in terms of the, the stock market. There are a series of global questions, the way we think about the presidency and the way we look to it for solutions when, in fact, we should look to the local level. All of that near-miss learning should take place. And the challenge is, if you bring it up now, there's too many big, complicated things to talk about. If you bring it up too late you won't have the thrust of the disaster to, to prompt you. Um, and finding that right spot is, is one of the challenges because those huge issues are being laid bare by this moment. Let's leave it there. I will. I want to end with the irony, of course, that in an emergency, everyone is a Keynesian. Everyone's a socialist in an emergency. All these, all these conservatives are like, yeah, bring it on. Fund the hell out of it, whatever it is. Print the money. Now we're joined by another Yale professor. How many Yale professors can we have on a single gab fest? It is David Blight, who is America's greatest historian of the Civil War and Reconstruction, at least in my book. And he is also the author of a biography of Frederick Douglass that came out last year or the year before, maybe even this year. But it won all the prizes, including the Pulitzer Prize, as Emily just pointed out to me. And he has a piece in The Atlantic this week about how crisis makes Americans reconnect to government, or we'll dig into that a little bit more. I wanted to talk to David because I think he writes so well and talks so well about how Americans lived during the Civil War and what their response to that catastrophe was. And I thought he might have wonderful, interesting things to say about how 
we should see the catastrophe that's unfolding for us. So, David, welcome back to the GabFest. Uh, thank you very much. Good to, good to hear or see everybody. We'll get to your Atlantic piece in a moment. I wanted to start because, as I said, I always love listening to you talk about what America was like during the Civil War and during Reconstruction, during what was, at the time, the greatest catastrophe ever to befall the country. And I wonder... When you look back at that time and then look at what we're facing today, a very different kind of catastrophe, obviously, but what and how Americans responded to Civil War and Reconstruction do you think uh, we can learn from? And what can we not learn from? Well, by 1861, every American, not Southeast or West, uh, underwent a kind of shock from events. uh, And they were uh, cascading events. Uh, secession had never happened before. What did it mean? Nobody quite knew. What did it mean to call for uh, volunteer soldiers? First 75,000 by Lincoln, then many, many, many more. Uh, armies uh, being forged out of militias uh, in the South. Uh, there was at first uh, a widespread belief that it would simply be a short war That, of course, did not turn out to be the case. Um, For Americans, it was was an enveloping process. I mean, throughout the summer of 1861, uh, the first major battles are fought, but it was really into the winter of 1861-62 and then the spring of 1862 that the full force of the scale of this war took over society. It took over families with hundreds of thousands of young men enlisting, most enlisted. Uh, The draft didn't come until later in 62. And then it took over the economy. Uh, It took over the government. Uh, Pretty soon, Americans were experiencing that word we're hearing every day now, all sorts of unprecedented phenomena, (laughs) elements of life they had never experienced before relationships to government they had never experienced before, a militarization of society they had never experienced before. And overnight in historical time, this conflict that seemed to be about something limited, and everybody did want to keep it limited, that is the leadership on both sides, the Confederacy and the Union government, did not remain limited. Uh, Within the year 1862, this would become a war that was all out, that was totalizing, that was utterly socially mobilizing, and that was very soon for ends and aims that would transform American society. And the biggest end and aim of that, of course, was the emancipation of slaves. So within a year to a year and a half, this buildup that they'd undergone now for two and three decades toward a conflict over the existence of slavery, the expansion of slavery, the political meanings of slavery, had suddenly blown up into war that in some ways most people did not want, uh, but here they were. Um, And overnight, uh, American families were losing two sons, a husband, Uh, many members of their families, and this war would become, within a year, certainly two years, a shock also to the culture, to ways people had learned how to deal with death, 
um, to the, the spiritual tools they had to cope with suffering, uh, with ideas of loss. The world would start producing a whole new kind of music, a whole new kind of poetry, a whole new kind of thinking about values. Men, young men, would undergo transformations of their own values. Manhood was supposed to mean that uh, you could go and encounter your fellow man with your individual courage, your individual metal. Turns out, in modern warfare, your individual will means next to nothing. You could not protect yourself. You could not protect the guy next to you. Uh, you had no control over your own fate. This becomes a shock to systems of thinking, um, systems of coping, um, ideas about the proper relationship of individuals to their society and individuals to their governments. So it's, it's, a, it's a total social shock of a war that became so large uh, that it eventually would slaughter close to 750,000 people. David, in your Atlantic piece, you wrote about Lincoln and his leadership, and then you also write about um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the way in which people's relationship and expectations of the government changed in the wake of the Depression as Roosevelt is pushing for the New Deal. And there's a quote that you used from an FDR fireside chat in 1935 the old reliance upon the free action of individual wills appears quite inadequate. The intervention of that organized control we call government seems necessary. So we're at another moment where we desperately need the government. We need it to lead. We need organization. We need just like simple or not simple, but centralized logistics to get all the equipment we need from one place to another. Um, and, you know, obviously Donald Trump is a very different kind of president, but we're at this moment where we really need the federal government to be playing this larger role. And one thing I've been struggling with as I've been watching these press conferences is what it's like when you have such profound doubts about your central government and your leadership at this moment. I mean, Trump himself, but then also the apparent failures of some parts of the government, I would single out the CDC, perhaps the Centers for Disease Control, in preparing for this pandemic. And I just wonder, as you look back on FDR and on Lincoln, how you think about those um, struggles that the country's going through. Well, I love the question. I'm glad you read that quote. Let's take up first that idea of the individual. I mean, is there a deeper idea, a deeper myth in the anthropological sense in American culture than this faith we have in individualism. You can't kill it, no matter what. Uh, whether it comes from Emerson and the Romantics or whether it comes from cowboy legends or whatever, uh, you just can't kill it. Uh, and and we, we still have this notion that somehow um, we can all be self-made. We, uh, we can all uh, save ourselves if we get into the right gated community or if we have enough wealth or if we have enough education. Turns out, in a crisis like this, we're terrified as individuals. And that's exactly what Roosevelt was saying there in that 1934 or 35 fireside chat. That, he, In fact, he even referred to it as the 19th century idea of, of frontier. He said this idea of the American going out and 
conquering and solving the dilemmas of the frontier on their own as individuals, hardy men, it just didn't fit the modern world anymore. In fact, it hadn't fit the age of industrialization and urbanization uh, for many, many, many decades. And suddenly the depression threw everybody back onto their own wits and their own wits were not adequate for anything. So where do you turn? You turn to government. Well, that's exactly what happened in the Civil War. It's pre- and, and it's right. To, and in fact, one of Roosevelt's favorite quotes was that quote by Abraham Lincoln, where he said that the, the purpose of government is to aid human beings in what they cannot do for themselves. That's a paraphrase. Lincoln said it better as usual. And, and in the Civil War, suddenly, uh, people started capitalizing the word government. Uh, people started talking about the government as something that would uh, help them, save them, preserve their society, preserve their constitution, act as a kind of a shield. Uh, and most Americans until 1860-61 had never experienced the federal government except largely through the post office. Uh, there was no federal taxation. There really were no federal agencies that engaged in people's lives. There certainly were overnight when the war came. So what we got here, and then the reason I wrote that piece is because I was like you, uh, Emily. I was just struggling to have something to say in the midst of, I guess, those press conferences um, or, or anywhere right now. And it's just all over our discourse now. It's everywhere. People are wondering, what's the role of government? What can government do? What is government doing? Why isn't what it's doing adequate? Uh, In a desperate kind of language now, we're asking what governments can do. Necessity always invokes government. Where do modern people turn when they cannot do for themselves what they most desperately need? For two centuries, they have turned to government. And as much as this society still has millions of people who don't trust government, don't like government, want government out of their lives, don't like taxation. Uh, Right now, everyone is desperate to understand how is government going to save us. And picking up on that, David, before I even knew we had you uh, to talk to, I was thinking about something you said uh, last summer when I talked to you about uh, your book on Frederick Douglass and we expanded the conversation a little bit more and you bas- and you said we were talking about why you study history, which is also one of the things you recommend while people are in lockdown. And you said, you know, we forget. It's always about a good it. idea, lockdown yeah. or not. <laughs> <laughs> and you said that we, we forget about it and then every once in a while history reasserts itself and just sort of bites us in the backside. And And you talk about necessity of the moment. But your larger case seems to me to be, you know what, this keeps happening because this is the way the ball bounces in the human experience. And maybe we should know from studying history, either whether it's Lincoln or FDR, that big existential surprise things that nobody knew were going to come that week, they might have known it was going to come someday, they happen. Mm -hmm. And given that, Mm -hmm. so can you pick up on that idea, basically, that um, one of the reasons that we read history is not just for the specific excitement of the moment, but also because of that more enduring idea that emergencies always happen and, hey, maybe we should do something more than a late-night vote uh, in the higgledy-piggledy of the moment. Uh, yeah, well, uh, beautifully put, John. Uh, you know, none of us should take any particular high ground in this. I mean, who predicted the end of the Cold War in 89 when it suddenly happened? 
who predicted 9-11? Well, you know, we can find that the CIA had been working on that. And of course, we know more now. Um, uh, you know, Pearl Harbor happened and it shocked the country. But we knew something about what the Japanese were doing in the Pacific, too. But the, there are many, many cases of this in history. And every time it happens, we are shocked uh, for good reason. You know, even 9-11 was not unprecedented. Everybody kept saying that was unprecedented, unprecedented, unprecedented. No, it wasn't. Uh, we've been slaughtering civilians ever since the Trojan War. I mean, so it, I don't know. There, there's no silver bullet on any of this. But history is that thing we have to draw on if we can take the time to read it that prepares us. It doesn't protect us, but it does prepare us for the shocks to come. Uh, and if we think somehow that history, because we live in America, is somehow on a course of progress and somehow always going to get better, uh, then we're kidding ourselves. Uh, no, it isn't. Um, these things are just going to keep happening. One of my favorite things I've ever written on this is, is it's, a, it's a little short section in a book by Mark Bloch. Uh, Mark Bloch was the great French historian killed in the Holocaust by the Nazis. But while he was in hiding in the French resistance and uh, moving from farmhouse to farmhouse, he managed to write most of the manuscript. Uh, this is so moving, I almost break up every time I tell the story. He managed to write most of the manuscript of his book called The Craft of History. And in, in that book, which has many, many uh, important elements, he makes a profound case of how the past and the present are always hand in glove. They're always interrelated, even when we don't know it, even when we don't think so. He calls it the solidarity of ages. Past and present are always mingled, and the past is always waiting to come get you in the present. Now, who would, who would know any better than Mark Bloch sitting in some farmhouse hiding from the Nazis trying to write about the meaning and uses of history, for God's sake? Um, no doubt it probably calmed him until they caught him and shot him um, with a firing squad. History shocks us. And right now, this one, frankly, we don't really know what the analogy is, do we? Analogies are flying around now like, like air. There's probably more analogies than there are virus. Uh, that's a bad joke. But, um, but everyone's looking for the right as this Pearl Harbor. It's the same thing we did with 9-11. But in some ways, 9-11 was a little easier. It was a military attack. We knew what to compare it to. What do you compare this to? I guess the 1918 epidemic. But we've never shut down the entire economy. <laughs> we've never closed off all transportation. New York City's never had empty streets, even in a blizzard. I mean, it's just never happened. So, you know, we don't know how to prepare for this. Well, we did know how to prepare for this and didn't in certain practical ways. But how to prepare ourselves emotionally, philosophically, spiritually right now, we're adrift. David, the period politically that we're in is been marked by incredible division just a country that's that's as divided as certainly any it's ever been in my lifetime when you look at what's starting to happen and the government response to the crisis do you think there's any reason to hope that we come out of this less divided or are the ways in which we're divided more likely to be reinforced by what happens during this 
Well, God only knows, uh, but it depends on how long this lasts. It depends on, de- on how deep the suffering is. I think our models for this is what probably happened to politics in the 30s and politics in the year of the Civil War. I always tell my students, if you are really yearning for a political realignment in America, I mean, a fundamental realignment, like new parties that actually work and develop new coalitions and last, you got two great models, the 1850s and 1860s, the birth of the Republican Party, which completely reshapes American politics with a whole new coalition. And you got the 1930s, which completely reshapes American politics and the Democratic Party, not overnight, because its roots are in progressivism, but the Democratic Party becomes the party of a new kind of liberalism, New Deal policy. And the Republican Party at that time increasingly becomes the conservative party of big business. Those are your two really big realignments in American history. So take your pick. You can have it with a civil war. You can have it with a Great Depression. Now, that's pretty depressing when you think about it. But who knows uh, what this kind of crisis could do? The irony here or the power of this is that it has everybody talking about existential issues. How are we going to feed people? How are we going to save our, our, uh, our medical people, the nurses and the doctors who are now risking their lives every day? Um, how are we going to ever revive the economy out of this? All of those are questions everybody has to ask, but it's going to be a turbulent road. David, what do you, you picked, you talked about Lincoln and FDR. So, do you have a, a template, given everything you just said about politics today, um, for how people got through? I mean, FDR comes in in 32. It's been since 26. They've had to endure lots of uncertainty and right. lots of and the the leaders and the people, the leaders in particular, both of those guys were, um, you know, uh, it was said that they had this great negative capability, that they could live in the uncertainty and not go stabbing after solutions. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, they took great actions, amazing historic mm-hmm. actions. Can you talk a little bit about that um, combination of attributes in the leader, but then also in the people? How did people live through, and perhaps they just were used to it in a life where you didn't have instantaneous everything the way we do now, but live through the uncertainty and the just existential, when's this ever and how is this ever going to get better? Well, on the latter question, John, a lot of them didn't. Let's remember, (laughs) uh, Civil Civil War killed a lot of people, maimed many more left families uh, ruined. Uh, we have to face that. And we need, we need a very strong sense of authentic tragedy to understand that. But back to leadership, it's, it's worth understanding here in just a quick sense that Lincoln, n- neither Lincoln nor Roosevelt had it all figured out. Both of them had very crooked roads. Uh, Lincoln had a crooked road to his moment of greatness with emancipation and his various moments of greatness with this passion to save the Union no matter what. The Lincoln of 1858 debating Stephen A. Douglas on the question of slavery is not the same Lincoln of the summer of 1863 or certainly of 64 when he is so concerned to free as many slaves as possible before the election that fall in case he doesn't win. Um, Roosevelt had a very crooked path to the ideas of the New Deal. He was spewing all kinds of contradictions, you know, when he was governor of New York and when he, even when he was running in 32. 
uh, no one quite knew what Roosevelt meant until he <laughs> kind of got it clear in the campaign. And then in 33, he kind of got it down that, look, we've got to revolutionize the way we use government to save society, to save employment, to save the human spirit. And we got to have a whole new imagination. He says we need a we need a whole change in our values. But it took time. It was a very crooked path, and we we shouldn't be looking for the silver bullet leader who just said, "Oh, I got this figured out. Let's do this." Frankly, what we need now are are brilliant, energetic, and I believe people infused with humility to practice William James's style of pragmatism. And now, now that might sound too philosophical for people, but all that really means is check your absolutes at the door, learn from your mistakes, test your ideas, and do what works. Um, but on how people got through it, I God, you know, I was raised by two parents who were so totally infused. All they could ever talk about was the Depression and World War II. My dad constantly lectured us on never getting too much insurance, know where your money is. And, and my mother could never stop talking about certain markers in her life, Pearl Harbor and this event in World War II and so forth and so on. They were infused by that. And the coping mechanisms in their lives, my mother's fatalism, I always attributed to the fact that she came of age in the Depression. She was so fatalistic. I said, she used to drive me crazy. Oh, it wasn't meant to be, she would say. And here I am training to be a historian. Historians can't say it wasn't meant to be. We have to explain things, for God's sake. And I used to, I love my, my mother's the greatest woman I've ever known, but God, I used to argue with her. But they learned a certain kind of, of course, they had years, as you were suggesting, to develop this, years to develop this. I don't know where we are now. Uh, I'm not a moral philosopher. I just do history. But, you know, we're going to need uh, coping mechanisms that come from our spiritual lives, our intellectual lives, and our sense of moral imagination. It's what we always need. And, you know, it's interesting to me right now how many friends are sending around poetry. A good friend of mine, a former colleague of mine who's now in Europe, sent me a poem by Bertolt Brecht this morning. I sent my students a Maya Angelou poem. It's like, wow, people are reading poetry every day. That's a good thing. <laughs> oh, good luck to us all. David Blight is a professor of history at Yale. David, thank you so much for joining us. Stay safe. We hope we'll talk you to bet. you soon. Thanks, everybody. Take care. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. 
To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. So let's go to cocktail chatter when you are sitting with your, hopefully with a, with a loved one, or if you're sitting on Zoom, having a, a Zoom cocktail hour or Google Hangout cocktail hour with friends, what will you be chattering about, Emily? My chatter this week is entirely frivolous, and perhaps the entire internet will have seen these videos before I share them, but I'm going to do so anyway. There is, I think, a Fox sports commentator named Joe Buck who has been doing these wonderful, very short videos in which he does like his full-on professional sports commentating for two dogs having a tug-of-war over a stick or a mom trying to comfort a kid. It seems like he is willing to do this with any short video you send him as long as you're willing to make any kind of charitable contribution in return. So if you go to his Twitter feed, which is just at Buck, you'll see this, I thought, very funny series of whimsical videos. I especially enjoyed the ones of the two dogs um, uh, fighting over the stick. Anyway, go have your moment of internet video uh, freedom. Joe Buck is actually borrowing that from a British sports announcer who, who's been oh, doing it, so awesome. who was interviewed on Hang Up and Listen this week. John, what's your chatter? Uh, my chatter is very brief. It's just... Um, uh, lunch poems by Frank O'Hara. This is uh, along the lines of what David Blight was talking about. Uh, I think we're all returning to our, um, I don't know, different sources of things. And um, uh, in part also because my writing schedule has uh, let up a little bit. Um, I've had a little bit more time. And those lunch poems are sort of perfect because they're quite short, but they're very evocative and very rich. Um, and Frank O'Hara wrote them while he was working at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And so many of them were uh, written at lunch or at a cafe or um, uh, anyway. So I recommend them because they're they're nice, tidy, short poems that are powerful. But then I also recommend just finding um, some very transporting uh, little piece of writing uh, to interrupt your day because it um, it does take you out of the moment and um, uh, I successfully resisted Twitter for two straight days here uh, in this week and found that also to be quite healthy. And so uh, I would pair that with this, uh, with your Frank O'Hara poems. My chatter is a piece that has nothing to do with the crisis that I saw that came from Jesse Isinger and James Bandler and the folks at ProPublica, uh, which they released this week. It is a shocking shocking story of malfeasance by Walmart and by the Trump administration. And it's an investigation of how Walmart abetted opioid pill mills. And several years ago, pharmacists at Walmart 
according to this investigation, pharmacists at Walmart identified bad prescription practices within the company, that they were allowing certain doctors to prescribe tons and tons of pills under suspicious circumstances. And they brought this to the attention of the company and the company and the senior leadership essentially did nothing. Then some federal prosecutors, U.S. attorneys appointed by Republicans, including, I think, appointed by Trump, heard of this and thought, and the DEA, the head of the DEA heard of this and said, this is a case for criminal prosecution. Let's look at a criminal prosecution of Walmart. And they started to investigate that and the Trump administration shut it down. Rod Rosenstein at the Department of Justice helped make sure that investigation went nowhere when later these prosecutors tried to criminally prosecute individual Walmart employees. That too was shut down. And it's a it's a deplorable story. So good work at ProPublica at a time when people are focused on something else. We see ways in which the Trump administration is perhaps letting letting a malfeasant company get off scot-free when it was doing some bad things. Listeners, you have sent us really nice chatters again this week. Please keep tweeting them to us at at SlateGabFest, many inspirational ones. And Kenneth Dudley sent us a Twitter thread from Anne McLean, who's an astronaut. And Anne McLean, the astronaut, uh, has a great Twitter thread, which was then transformed into an article about how to live in confined spaces and not go crazy. And since we're all living in confined spaces and trying not to go crazy, I recommend it. So how you can be patient and respectful, how you can watch out for stress and fatigue, how you can encourage participation and positive relationships. It's really good. So check that out. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to the GabFest on whatever podcast vehicle you're listening to us on. You will get new episodes the second they come out. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. We all engineered ourselves in our own homes. Congratulations to us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? How are you? How are you guys? You guys still there? You mean us? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Just wondering. Just felt like talking to the void for a bit there. Uh, uh, Anyway, so um, for Slate Plus, here was my proposal. This shutdown, this social distancing, so odd, so many strange experiences. Um, It's so so weird to run through life. And I just wanted us after, you know, 10 whatever days of this, 14 days of it. 10 days of it. I am interested in you, whether you guys have any particular observations about it, any strange experiences, any points that you want to make. Um, I can go first since you go first. It's my, it was my bad idea. Uh, I think for me, so I've been doing a lot of walking. I believe that the outdoor, uh, outdoor walks in nature are very curative and restful and good for you. And that's been really one of the very few joys of this, this dark period and going on walks with family. And one of the things that I've just noticed is that I've no, I notice like noticing all these things, which I haven't noticed before. And I've been on trails in rock Creek park that I've never seen and seen parts of the city that I'd never seen and noticed things on, there's a trail I walk almost every day just outside my house and, you know, noticed the different 
ways that birds use it and notice the different way uh, the the trees next to it grow and noticed more things about the stream that I'd never noticed before. And it's, I think that when you travel the world as you and you, John and you, Emily and I have all done, I think you tend to tend to get a very quick gloss on something rather than digging deep into a particular place. And it's been one of the few benefits of this is to feel that I'm digging deeper into the place that I know and to the place that's my home. And that's, that's nice to, to, to get a deeper knowledge of a place that's around the corner for me. I've welcomed that. I love that. I mean, I think there is a way in which when you simplify and shrink your life, then the small things loom larger. And that's a good thing. Um, it can also just be like... GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.